0: That was wonderful. Already, I think we could just go home. That was wonderful, wasn't it? You know, for a church plant, honestly, I have never seen anything like it in my life. The quality of people that God has brought to this church and just the worship is through the roof, literally. I mean, it's just absolutely wonderful. And uh, this is a blessing. I hope that you are... Inviting people to come and be a part of this church to come and visit with us Because I think that god's going to use this church mightily up here in rock hill I really do. There's a lot of people that right now don't know about it And whenever they find out about it, they're going to come and so we're going to keep praying that direction Well today I want to take you to our study that we've been looking at in our church and that's in second thessalonians second thessalonians chapter 2 We've been in this for a little while now, just in this chapter, working our way through the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. If you know anything about the Thessalonian letters, they are definitely uh, some of the most practical, inspiring, encouraging letters in all of the New Testament. And this church was a church unlike any others that he had written to. They were a church that literally loved the Lord Jesus Christ, had separated themselves from idols to serve the true and living God, and they were also a second coming church. They were anticipating and looking forward to, and as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, they were waiting for the return of Christ. So much so that in the second letter when Paul addresses a rumor and some false teaching that was going around, that some of them had been told that the day of the Lord had already come, And they were shutting down. They were quitting their jobs. They were stopping their work. And they were just waiting and expecting the Lord to come any moment. And so they were a church that was eager to see the Lord and his return. And this was also a time of trouble in the church. I mean, we're into the beginnings of the reign of Nero. And it's uh, going to be some very, very difficult days ahead for the areas of Asia Minor where these churches are. And so God's going to use the letter to Thessalonian church by Paul as a great means of encouragement and instruction. Now, chapter two um, logically follows chapter one. And that's important because when we drop right into this text, you need to understand that there is a context to the Apostle Paul's word. In chapter one, he was talking about God bringing vengeance on those that do not know God and on those that do not obey the gospel of Christ when he returns. He was saying that because the church was under intense pressure and tribulation by those that were persecuting the people of God. And so he was giving them assurance that one day, God would bring vindication and would bring righteous judgment to those who had troubled the church of God. In that same context of the second return of Christ, He introduces another very important topic and you could just simply refer to it as some chronology because as I told you they were told that there were some there were some false teachers or maybe some letters circulating that were telling them that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had already come and so they were thinking that the tribulation and the pressure and the persecution they were in was the day of the Lord historically and also contextually even if you look back at the old testament you're going to find that the day of the lord or the day of god always referred to cataclysmic judgment it may have been some immediate judgment like coming on babylon or the assyrian empire or even in some cases israel but there was also an eschatological day of the lord that the prophets talked about that was clearly a future event, something to come in the future when the Lord would return and he would bring justice and he would bring wrath and he would bring judgment on the world. And so they had been taught and misled that they were in that time. And so Paul writes second Thessalonians chapter two specifically to correct that error. And the thing that he tells us is something profoundly useful for all of us as believers. And that is this, that The return of Christ, listen to this carefully, is not a signless event. It's not a signless event. There's a very popular teaching that was popularized all the way back to the Schofield Bible notes, also um, Lewis Berry Schaefer, Dallas Theological Seminary, and even further back than that, that taught that the next event on the calendar of God's eschatological events was the rapture of the church. And so it was taught that it is a signless event, that it's some, any moment, or imminent would be the word that was often used imminent at any second, that all of us could be taken out of here and uh, we would be raptured and planes would crash and cars would crash and a uh, very, very popular view, especially in North America. In many of the areas where people aren't persecuted, it really does well. But. Whenever you begin to look at the Word of God, it seems to indicate, at least to me it does, that this event of the return of Christ is not a signless event. In fact, I personally believe, based upon this text and a number of others, that you and I will indeed suffer persecution. And we will suffer persecution at the hands of what is called the Antichrist. Not a Antichrist, but the Antichrist. And we'll begin to talk about him in a few moments And then before the day of the Lord begins, which is a time of supernatural wrath that God literally pours out of heaven, he will take his people home to be with him or at least take them home to be with him outside of the wrath of God before he pours it out. So what I'm saying is that I do believe that the Bible teaches us that we're going to go through a very difficult time before the Lord comes back. But I also believe that the event called the day of the Lord is not a signless event. And the reason why is 2 Thessalonians 2. It is a profound passage. In fact, as far as the passages in all of the Word of God, it has information here that is very important for all of us to know. Let me just read a few of the verses. I I tell you what, for the sake of our remembrance of where we've been, let me just read the first 12 verses of that chapter, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. The Word of God says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God so that he is worshiped, or that is worshipped. Um, sorry, I just lost my place. So that he sits as God, or as, or is seated as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one, and then it says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all righteous or unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There is a war coming, and that war is unlike any war in the history of the world. It is a war that will bring complete annihilation to the enemy. It is the war where all of man's inventions to kill will be worthless all the bombs and bullets and tanks and rockets will be useless as a paper plane flown by a child into a flame this war will be finite puny man against infinitely powerful god every soldier will have no effect every satellite will be useless Every evil plan and every evil ploy will be undone, and every device of man will fail. And there's also a very evil man coming. This man has great political power and might, a man of persuasive and blasphemous words, a man who deceives with great delight and kills with no regret. He hates all that is good, he loves all that is bad. His house is filled with demons and his father is the devil. Immorality is his first love and his bride is hate. He is the opposite of love and the epitome of lawlessness. He is also the one whom many in the past have cast shadows for. In other words, there have been men in the past that are similar to him, would resemble him, would give us a glimpse of this evil man. Men like Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a murderer and a very hateful and evil man, who was full of brutality. You have Nero, who was a very perverted murderer. And then you have a man who was full of torture and demonic musings like Hitler. All of these are just shadows Of the man of sin or the man of lawlessness or the satanic beast that is to come. But in this great war in the future, where this man of lawlessness will be, the Bible teaches us that he will be destroyed. He will be cast away eventually into the lake of fire. With that said, let me remind you of that. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And I'll just read a few of the verses here in verse 11 through 21. This is the advent of the return of Christ as he comes in the heavens on the white horse, coming to judge and to bring righteous judgment. And it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and following, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were like many crowns. He had a name which was written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This does not refer to the atonement. This refers to the slaughter of the ones who oppose him, and his garments are spattered with the blood of the victims. And as it says in this text, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name was called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men in the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army so this is an army led by a beast which is a man who desires to destroy christ and he has enough pride and arrogance to believe he can conquer the one coming in the clouds and he makes war against christ and then the beast it says was captured And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this evil man that's coming that is referred to here as the beast will be eventually defeated when the Lord returns. It very much resembles what we read in 2 Thessalonians that it tells us this man of lawlessness will be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. By the very words that come out of his mouth. And you see that in Revelation 19 as the sword comes out of his mouth. Not a literal sword, but the sword of the word of God. Christ doesn't need ammunition or bombs or bullets. He just simply needs to speak. And the armies are slaughtered. So this man, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, that is a evil man that is coming. Paul warned us about him. Paul talked specifically about him, and he reminds the church at Thessalonica that you need to be aware that there are some signs that precede the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment on this earth. Now, I don't have time to go into all of it, but let me remind you of a few things. There are three things primarily that Paul points out in this text. The first is his description, the man of lawless description, and then his desecration, And then third, his deception. And what we're going to look at today is just primarily the desecration, but I'm going to review a few things that I think are very important. To begin with, in verse 3, he talks about his description. Now, just to remind you, if you remember back at verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him. This is one and the same event. These are not two separate events. This is one in the same event. The coming of the Lord is the word parousia. It refers to the presence of Christ. It's a common word used to refer to the return of the Lord. It primarily refers not to just him coming from heaven to earth, but literally his presence being here. So the idea is concerning the coming of our Lord when he comes to this planet and our gathering together to him. That's the Greek word that refers to the gathering of the saints of God. Those are one in the same event. When he comes, he gathers. When he gathers, he comes. Even grammatically speaking, in the original language, the way it's structured there, it's telling us that these are not two separate events spaced out by time, but in fact, they are one in the same event. And Paul is telling us, now concerning those events, I want you to understand that before the Lord shows up, before the day of the Lord starts, when the Lord shows up, he says two things have to happen. He tells us that there has to be a falling away and then there has to be the man of sin is revealed. Now in chapter 2 verse 3, he identifies this man of sin or man of lawlessness as that one who is the son of destruction. He uses a word here that refers to a characteristic of the antichrist this man of lawlessness, he's a man that is going to destruction, but also he's characterized by destruction. He's also a man of lawlessness, meaning not that he doesn't have any laws that he would abide by because he's going to make his own laws, but he has no desire or submission to the law of God or any other law as far as that is concerned that man may make. He's a man of anomias, he's lawless. He has his own standard that he will bind the people to, to obey. But as far as God's law and God's word and God's standards, he's absolutely the antithesis of that. But then we move on to his desecration, not only his description, but his desecration. This is verse four. Now, this is most fascinating because when you read these words, it's very difficult right at first to wonder what in the world is Paul talking about here? What is he referring to? He says that this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition, is the one in verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now we're going to break that down in just a moment and I think you'll understand exactly what Paul's referring to. And there are four basic characteristics we learn about the antichrist in this one verse. In the first is this, he's adversarial. The second is he's egotistical. The third is he's universal and the fourth is he's counterfactual and I'll explain what I mean and the first is that he's adversarial look at the word in verse four it says he's the one who opposes that's a participial phrase and it translates he is the one continually opposing he's characterized like this that's what a participle will do it can modify a noun or a verb And in this case, it's modifying the noun that he, the son of lawlessness and also the son of perdition, is the opposing one. He's the one who continually opposes. Well, oppose what? Right? That would be a good question. What is he opposing? Well, it says in the text, if you follow the thought, he opposes all that is called, listen to this, a God. There's no definite article there, which we can easily assume then that perhaps he's talking about any God, a God, and then also another word that we'll look at in a few moments that's translated in the new King James are all that is worshiped. The NASB says any object of worship. And that's very critical to understand. And I'll show you what I mean in a few moments, but just to understand the flow of the thought that he is adversarial. That is, he opposes anything that is called a God or the true God, obviously, or any object of worship. And what does the word oppose mean? It has the idea of being hostile to or completely and fully against something. To get a flavor of the word, you can see how it's translated in a couple of other texts. Like in 1 Timothy 5.14, it talks about the adversary will speak reproachfully about you. And the word adversary is the same Greek word that refers to the devil. So the one who is the opposer is one who acts like the devil. And then also that same Greek word that is translated oppose in our text is translated in Galatians 5.17. It says, therefore, the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. That's the word oppose. So you begin to see a little bit of the flavor of the word that it's some it's a characteristic of the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. He is opposed to he's hostile towards He's completely against, he's contrary to, he's the adversary of, what? Anything that is called a god or that is an object of worship. Now this is important to understand because if we're going to identify this man, not by name, we don't know who he is. We're going to see characteristics that are going to help us to understand who he is. One of the most important things you can understand about this man, he is absolutely intolerant of any other religion. Absolutely intolerant. He will not permit anyone else to worship any other god. He's not, as so many have tried to say about the Antichrist, he's not ecumenical. Some have taught that the way the Antichrist gets on the scene is through the false prophet that he basically says let's get all the religions together as one and we'll all worship the same god that's not what the antichrist is going to do he's totally opposed to any other god any other religion any other form of a god he is adversarial and then the second point is this he's egotistical you can see it in verse four He says he is the one who opposes and again another participle continually exalts himself above all so he has no place in his heart for god no he believes he is the supreme one it reminds you of isaiah 14 and ezekiel 20 28 which clearly are about contemporary kings of that day but also are reflections of what satan was like As he ascended up into the northern parts and he declared himself to be God and you remember in Isaiah 14 God said oh no you don't and he kicked him out it was over for him but here in this text it tells us that he's one who exalts himself above all that is called God or as I think the New American said so called God it's not a real God it could be any kind of God from a false religion. And he exalts himself above that God, or those gods, plural. So that would include a a great deal of the world religions, would it not? And also it would include Christianity. We believe there's one God, and that one God is Christ, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He would be totally opposed to that. Also, Judaism, which still believes in the Shema, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, They know that they're not supposed to worship any false gods or idols, and the Antichrist would be opposed to that religion. But you could add into that also all the other false religions of the world that have other forms of gods and all types of religious services. But I find it fascinating that the next word that Paul chooses to use here in this very important point that he brings to our attention is that he is not going to... um, Rather, he's going to exalt himself above every object of worship. Did you catch that? That's the word in the New King James, it says, or that which is worshiped. Actually, the Greek text is the word sebasma. Very fascinating. Lexicons agree, nearly universal, that this refers to objects of worship and can refer to idols anything basically that is used as a means of worship it can be an artifact or an idol or anything a piece of furniture whatever it is if it's utilized for religious purposes and devotional purposes toward a god he's opposed to it now think about that with me for a moment now i'm reformed okay our church subscribes to the 1689 london confession of faith and my brothers in the Presbyterian churches adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith, in both of those confessions, at least the older version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, they both say very emphatically that the Antichrist is the Pope. That's what it says. Now, understanding that the Reformers, whenever they were writing these words down, their main threat of their entire life was the Roman Catholic Church. It was a political entity. It was also a religious entity. It literally dominated everything. And whenever they came out, the Reformation happened, and they came out of the Roman Catholic Church and embraced the true gospel of Christ, you know the history. You know what happened. Even just the reign of Bloody Mary. I mean, killing saints left and right. And you could easily see how they could see how this Pope, who called himself the Holy Father would believe they would believe that this man is the antichrist he exalts himself above all that is called god he's anti-christ he's against christ or as some would even say because he claims to be the vicar of christ that he's antichrist in the place of christ makes a lot of sense doesn't it but sadly if uh, if you haven't followed it it seems like more and more even guys of Reformed doctrine have moved away from that position now i'll tell you the truth i think this verse right here is pivotal i think it's absolutely pivotal to understand exactly what paul's talking about and the reason why i say that is this he is telling us that the antichrist will exalt himself above every god okay every so-called god and every object of worship Now, what is the most characteristic thing about the Roman Catholic Church? Thousands upon thousands of objects of worship. The main one is Mary. They worship Mary. There's no doubt about that. There might be some in the papacy or some of the priests that may say, Oh, no, we don't worship Mary. All you have to do is just read for yourself their own documents and their own prayers about Mary. Whenever they pray the rosary, 50 of those prayers are to Mary, while five of them are to the Father. They worship Mary. In fact, the Pope will not claim to be over Mary. Mary is the means by which, as they even pray, that men and women are converted. They have literally deified Mary. And they worship her. They call her the mother of God. The mother of God. Now beyond that, beyond the fact that the Roman Catholic Church literally worships Mary and has her as an object of worship, you could add to that the thousands of relics that they have. John the Baptist's head. You know, Peter's hair. Some parts of the cross. All kinds of things. Some even claim they've got the blood that's spilt on the ground below the cross. And people travel for miles, hundreds of miles. During the time of the Reformation, they would literally walk for hundreds of miles just so they could go and see this relic and worship at that place. Do you remember whenever Martin Luther made his pilgrimage to Rome, which was really the catalyst that turned things on him? He went all the way to Rome thinking he was going to see this wonderful thing at Rome with the papacy. And what he saw was corruption. He saw immorality in the priesthood. And then he goes and goes up the steps there that were believed to be the very steps that were brought in at Pilate's place where Jesus would have ascended. And so he climbs up those steps on his knees. And then when he finally gets to the top, by the way, he says a prayer every time of confession as he goes up each step. When he finally gets to the top, he says, who knows if any of this is true. And they worship all of this stuff. And then we add to that the veneration of the saints. I mean, the saints are worshipped. If you, like Mother Teresa recently, who was given her sainthood, the people literally will pray to her and worship her and other saints in the history of the Roman Catholic Church that they call saints. My point is this. This word translated here, objects of worship, or says basma eliminates the potential possibility that the roman catholic church could be the pope or rather be the antichrist because this man whoever he is is opposed listen to this he's opposed to anyone worshiping mary he's opposed to anyone worshiping at the relics he's opposed to any of the veneration of the saints there's not one single object whether it's the roman catholics or the buddhas that he would say that's okay He's the opposite of it. So although I, when I say these words, I've literally disagreed with a few hundred years of church history. And I'm I'm very well aware of that. But I must also confess to you that me holding to a confession word for word does not mean I'm lost or saved. Because the word of God is the sole authority. And although we love our confessions, yes we do. And they are a great guide to our, our truth that we love. We have to also understand, (laughs) I don't know if any of you come from a Presbyterian background, but just hold on. Okay, here we go. That even our great Reformed fathers, many of them embraced and taught infant baptism. As Reformed Baptists, we do not embrace infant baptism. We don't do that. We go deeper in the water. And there's a reason why we do that, because we believe that's what the Bible teaches with the word baptizo. And do you realize, by the way, if you were to take the Greek word baptizo that's transliterated in the New Testament and translated baptized, in other words, you're not getting the meaning of the word, you're just getting a transliteration of the word, which is an equivalent, B for B, A for A, and so forth, you're not getting the meaning of the word with "baptize" in the New Testament. The actual meaning means to immerse. That's what it means, not to dip, not to sprinkle, not to spatter, it means to, to immerse. Even James Montgomery Boyce admits that in his commentary on Romans 6. He knows that's what it says. The lexical history is absolutely for sure on that. And that's way beyond what I'm talking about tonight. But my point is this, is that if the reformers can be off on one of the sacraments of the church, really ordinance would be better, ordinance of the church, then they may have missed it on the pope being the antichrist. Now I'll go as far as to say, I want to make sure I'm very clear on this. He is a antichrist and every one of them is a antichrist and all the priests are a antichrist. The entire Roman Catholic church is hostile to the gospel. It is blasphemous. It is a, a, a desolated representation of the truth. I mean, we could go on and on and on about that. We know that we know that we are a product. Literally the Protestant movement is a product of the reformation And we're thankful to God of the many who gave their lives for the truth of the gospel. But I think, I believe at least, that the text here calls for us to think a little further and a little bit beyond the fact that it could be the Roman Catholic Church or that it could be a pope or the papacy. And so it tells us in this text that he is an adversary to any God, a God, any religion. He's egotistical, he exalts himself above all that is called a God and also any object of worship, but also he's universal. What do I mean by that? In verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God. In other words, he's not isolated to one little lot of land somewhere, and he's not isolated to one single religion. He's he's going to oppose every single religion, every single religion reference to their god. Now Revelation talks about there's going to be a universal effect of this man of lawlessness. It says in Revelation 13:7 that authority was given to this beast over every tribe, tongue and nation. It says in Revelation 13:12 that he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. That's the false prophet causing those to worship the antichrist. And then Revelation 17:8 says and those who dwell on the earth will marvel And then if you want to know who those who dwell on the earth represent, by the way, the, the word here, those who dwell on the earth, is literally earth dwellers. These are the ones that are referred to in the book of Revelation as the unbelievers, as the ones who don't know God, don't know Christ, don't know the gospel, do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 14, 6, it says that those who dwell on the earth are those of every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. It's universal. It's not isolated to one religion, one location. His influence, his opposition, his adversarial stance is to every single nation, tongue, and tribe, and people. But that's not all. That's just some. Let's move a little further. And now we're going to get really interesting. Now, verse 4 tells us, He's not only adversarial, egotistical, and universal, but he's counterfactual. What I mean by that is, is that he's literally the opposite of what God states, and the opposite of who God is. Look at it again in verse 4. This is the last part of the verse. So let's read it in its context as it flows. The man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, is the one who... I'm reading the tenses of the verb, the one who is continually opposing and hostile to and exalts continually himself above every so-called God or a God, lowercase g or any object of worship. And here it comes. So that result, so that he is seated or sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What in the world is Paul talking about? What is he talking about? The translation of the word here, the temple of God. The Greek ton, naon on theou, is actually literally translated the temple of the God. The definite article is there in some of the other places. The definite article is not there, which we could assume not always, but we could assume that he's talking about a lowercase G gods or a low, a fake God or false God. But here, whenever he uses that that phrase or that grammatical construction, it seems that the Apostle Paul has in mind that this man of sin is the one who is seated or sits as a God in the temple of the God, the God. Now, this is one of the times I think that all of us would wish Paul gave us a whole lot more information. I think all of us would wish he had given us a commentary or at least a couple more verses. Because in the very next verse, he says, you know, don't you remember when I was with you? I told you these things. And every time I read that, I said, no, I don't remember any of that. You didn't tell me anything. You left me with all this speculation on what in the world you mean. And I think, though, I think if we work our way through it, we can isolate it a little bit. Now, again, I'm going to get into an area that I would have to tell you is probably more my opinion than it is that I would want to nail it down and say this is absolutely the only way it can be. I think personally all of us are going to be surprised as the Lord comes back and he shows up and how things work out. And we're going to say, oh, that's the way it worked. The post mills are going to be disappointed. The ah mills are going to be disappointed. <laughs> the historic pre-mills and the pre-mill dispensationalists are going to say, oh, man, I missed it. All of us are going to be, okay, we, we understand now. It kind of reminds me of the book of Daniel. If you remember reading the last parts of the book of Daniel, he tells Daniel the prophet, seal it up until the time of the end. He says, many will run to and fro, but knowledge will increase. That's not talking about people flying on planes and the internet. Tim LaHaye might believe that, but that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that there's going to be more and more people as we get closer to the return of Christ, that these things are going to make sense. They're going to make sense. Now, whether you believe the beast is Nero or a future antichrist, it is interesting to note that he says that you cannot buy or sell without a mark, right? And for years and years and years, people wondered, how can that happen worldwide? Well, just watch your news now. As we rapidly move to the Great Reset and the digital economy, and before long, just like they turned Putin off and his visa cards, they can turn you off too, right? Just be alert. Don't be so strapped into your eschatological view that you can't see beyond that. And I think whenever we get in here, I told a person this morning in our church that they, they think I'm dispensationalist, but I'm not. I'm actually a disco. I have covenant theology and dispensationalism in, in the mix. My dispensationalism really is fleshed out this way. Before the fall, God dealt with Adam one way. After the fall, he dealt with Adam a different way. Clearly, there's an old covenant and a new covenant, right? And even those who are opposed to dispensationalism know that there's actually this age, and the age to come. But whenever we talk about dispensationalism, what people hear is this. Pre-tribulational rapture. The church has got to get out of here before God does anything with Israel. And Israel and the church are distinctly separate. And there's two bodies of Christ. But that's the old dispensationalism that was Lewis Perry Schaefer in Dallas Theological Seminary. And if you just read the text, like I told this person this morning, I'm kind of like Jeff Durbin on this. And I think it was good that he did this. He said, I've never read the Institutes of Calvin. Because people are like, man, you're a Calvinist. You must be reading John Calvin. You must worship John Calvin. He says, I've never read the Institutes of Calvinism or John Calvin. And the same is with me. I've never read a single book on dispensationalism. All I want to do is look at the text let the text push me where I need to go. And I might not be comfortable with that, but I'm going to let it say what it says. And hopefully, Lord willing, I'll land somewhere close to Orthodox religion. <laughs> let me just tell you, tell you what I have in mind here. I don't have a lot of time to finish this and develop it, but I want to show you a few things. So whenever we talk about this temple of God and he who sits in this temple of God, which is the Antichrist, and then it says he declares or shows himself to be God, There's a lot of questions that come to the mind there when you read that text. Like, what exactly is he talking about when he says the temple of God? What temple? Is he talking about the temple in Paul's day? The Herodian temple? Or is he talking about a spiritual temple, like the temple of the church, that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Or is he talking about a future temple that would be rebuilt in Jerusalem? Or is he talking about a metaphorical temple, that this is all to be understood spiritually or allegorically? And the other question is, what does he mean by sit in the temple? If it's not a literal temple, what's he doing sitting? And where is he sitting, right? Or how is he sitting? And then also, what does it mean that he shows himself to be a god? How does he do that? So whenever we look at these, this one verse or even the half of the verse here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, there's a lot of things to kind of work your way through. And I think that it's important to kind of go through the process of elimination. And the process of elimination may not be as hard as you think, and also we incorporate, which we all know here, Annihologa Scriptura, comparing Scripture with Scripture. We basically allow the Word of God to instruct the Word of God. Even though sometimes it may not necessarily agree with our view or agree with even what we believe history teaches us we want to compare scripture with scripture and draw the conclusions from that so there are four basic views of this text four of them one is the historical view the second one is the metaphorical view the third is the ecclesiastical view and the fourth is the geographical view and what do i mean by that well first of all the historical view the historical view takes the Temple to be the temple during the days of Paul or the same temple that Jesus would have walked in the Herodian temple. This was that massive structure overlaid by gold that eventually was set on fire by the soldiers that came with the Rome Roman generals. And they destroyed that temple and left all the stones thrown down in 70 AD. And as you know from reading history on that that there were over a million Jews that were slaughtered it was absolutely horrific you can read Josephus and get all the details regarding that so some believe this is a historical temple and even some have gone as far as to say that this reference to being set up as a god in the temple is a reference to Gaius Caesar or Caligula who died in 41 AD he declared his own divinity he believed he really was a god at least he believed it And he attempted to set up an image of himself in the temple in Jerusalem, although he failed to do so. He was killed before it happened. He set up other areas in the province of Asia. He erected two temples to worship him in Rome. He would appear on occasions to present himself as a god in the public. Caligula would even have the heads of some of the statues in the area of Rome removed, and then he would take a replica of his head and put it on the top of the statue. He also wished to be worshipped as Neos Helios, which is the new sun. It was also represented on the Egyptian coins as the sun god. So he literally was a man full of himself, who exalted himself above all that is called a god. The contemporaries of Caligula described himself as insane, self-absorbed, short-tempered, killed at a whim, killed for mere pleasure and amusement. He would waste money and cause starvation. On one occasion, whenever he was presiding over some games in Rome, they ran out of prisoners to kill and to throw to the beast, so they took a section of the audience and threw them in. That's one game you don't want to go to. He was a bad guy. He was an evil man. No doubt about that. But some see, well, that's probably a reference then to Caligula. It's a historical account. But remember, when Paul wrote these words, it's around 51 to 52 AD. That's 10 years after Caligula. And then others go as far as to say, well, maybe what Paul is talking about is Nero here. Kenneth Gentry takes the view that the passage here is Nero. He admits that this is one of the hardest passages in all of the New Testament regarding his own partial preterist view. And so he takes the view that this is Nero and the coming of Christ in the text is a spiritual coming whereby he slaughters his enemies by the breath of his mouth, meaning the gospel. Well, where I differ with that is this. I differ with that because the coming of Christ in this text is not a spiritual coming. If you look at verse 8, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it says that this man of sin will be consumed with the breath of his mouth and be destroyed by the brightness of his coming the word brightness is the word epiphany the word coming is the word parousia which we're used to with the coming of christ but what is also interesting is the word epiphany if you use it in reference to christ every single time in the new testament when it's talking about jesus christ epiphany or appearance it's always physical and always real so, here in this text, I believe we shouldn't take it any different. Why should we all of a sudden change how we take it? Whenever, in fact, it's clear that the text is telling us that the Lord will come and he will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the very brightness or the appearance of his coming. It sounds so much like Revelation 19. So in my personal opinion, I think we can rule out that this is referring to a historical event, whether it be Emperor Nero or Caligula or any other of the emperors as far as that is concerned, because this real man who will come as the man of sin will have to be destroyed whenever the Lord literally shows up. That means if he lives a normal life, 70 plus years, he's going to be destroyed in a short period of time. That means whenever he shows up and he starts doing his thing, that sometime within a matter of years he will be dead and thrown into the lake of fire. The other possibility is the metaphorical view. And that basically says this, that there's not a real temple in view here, that the temple of God refers to the rule and the reign of God, like the seat of his judgment. And so the idea is that the Antichrist will rule and reign, not in a literal place, but he will rule in the reign and in the place of God. But again, there's nothing in the text that tells us that. And there's no reason why we are given any hint at all that we should take it metaphorical. From chapter 1, when he's talking about the return of Christ and vengeance, and he's talking about he's bringing vengeance on those that don't know God and don't obey the gospel, there's literally nothing there that gives indication that that's a spiritual coming. And there's nothing in the text here when he talks about a literal falling away, and then also the man of sin being revealed, That's the word apocalypto. He's revealed, made known publicly that there's nothing here we should see that would give us indication that we should even go to a metaphorical understanding of it or an allegorical. Symbolic, nothing. There's nothing there. You literally have to make the text do it because it just doesn't do it on its own. It doesn't. And then the other one. This is a growing view. I have a few commentaries that embrace this view, and that is the ecclesiastical view. And that is this, is that the temple of God here refers to the church, the church or the true church. And whenever you first get into reading this, it kind of makes sense at the very beginning, because, you know, the Bible tells us that God dwells in his church, his people, not the building, not the structure. But you and I are the building. We're the building. And the Holy Spirit lives in us. And the Bible specifically says that we are the temple of God. And Paul uses this phraseology, the temple of God, five times in his New Testament letters. And all other times, just setting 2 Thessalonians aside for a moment, all the other times he always refers to to the temple of God being the church or the body of Christ or the place where God dwells in the people of God? Like for instance, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? 1 Corinthians three sixteen, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Paul again, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? In other words, what agreement does the church, the true church, the body of Christ have with idols? He says, for you, you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and be their God and they shall be my people. And not only that, I mean, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21, Paul calls us the whole building fitted together that grows into a holy temple of the lord and then if you believe paul wrote hebrews or at least luke wrote it from a sermon that paul preached in hebrews 3 6 it says but christ as a son over his own house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end we are the house we are the temple We are the place where God dwells. We are where God put his Holy Spirit. And then to add to that, the word that Paul uses, naos, N-A-O-S, is a word that refers to the holy of holies or the inner sanctuary. That's the word he uses for temple. There's another word that is used throughout the New Testament 71 times, heron. Heron refers to the entire temple structure, including the outside courts, Uh, and all of the other structure of the temple but whenever the word naos is used it most is used of the inner sanctuary or the holy place or the holy of holies so when paul wants to talk about the holy spirit living in us as a temple he's saying we are the inner sanctuary we are the holy of holies that's an amazing thing to consider where god put his spirit it's most fascinating so paul has that in mind, whenever he uses the word temple here. So, really, whenever you read those verses and you hear those words that Paul uses here, it's very appealing to believe that what Paul has in mind here is that the Antichrist will somehow come into the temple of God or the church. Now, I've said this a couple of times in my past sermons at our church regarding this. We are, as a church, I'm talking about the whole visible body of Christ, not the true church, but the visible body of Christ, which sadly would include a lot of hyper-faith, charismatic things that are going on, and they are ripe for apostasy, literally ripe for apostasy. There's a dumbing down of doctrine, a dumbing down of preaching and teaching in the churches, for years and then add to that all the God told me this and God told me that add all of that to it where we're no longer believing the sufficiency of the Bible and the authority of the scripture and the church has literally got to a point that it can be easily seduced by false doctrine and what I mean by that is the visible church not the invisible church not the true church but I'm talking about the visible people who associate with the church in membership even as far as local assemblies Or just come to an assembly. It's been said for years that the church is literally the evangelistic field of the church. I mean, there are thousands of people who attend church on every Lord's Day that are lost and they believe that they're saved. I've had some people in in churches I've pastored, and you can tell I don't preach shallow necessarily, but I've preached the Word of God to them, and then you talk to them and they say, Well, brother, I. Or, Pastor, I'm trying to live a good life. Where have you been? All the messages on the gospel and no works. You don't get it. Why? Blind. Can't see it. Can't see it. And my point is this, is that whenever you think about that and you think about the Antichrist appearing in the church, you think, well, that would make sense. Then we see why the apostasy happens. He shows up and everybody just follows after him. But... I would have to say we might want to think about that a few moments. I mean, the Bible does give us warning not to be deceived. It tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you by any means. Matthew 24, 5 says that many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and will deceive many. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that if anyone says to you, look, there's Christ or there, don't believe it. He says the false Christ and the false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But if we were to read this text the way we would understand the temple of God, let me back up for a moment and and just remind you of what we're talking about here. If the temple of God is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells, okay, then that means we're talking about the real church, the true church. We're not talking about people who associate with it. We're not talking about the fake church, the false church. We're not talking about people who are just claiming to be Christians, professing. We're talking about the real church, the one where the Spirit of God has literally been deposited. And so what you're saying is, is that the, listen to this carefully. You're saying that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, look at the text, will find a seat in the true church. How do you get in the true church? You just become a member, get baptized? How do you get in the temple of God? Does anyone in here know? Salvation. That's the only way in. And the word ice or ace that is translated in 47 translations I looked at to see if any one of them took it any different. There was only one, and it translated the word in as unto but all the other 46 of them translate it in every reputable translation translates the word in or into and the idea is that the man of sin or the man of lawlessness is literally going into the temple of god now there's problems with that there's a lot of problems with that how does he get in (laughs) how does he get in the temple of god where the holy spirit is dwelling and the indication is not that he's in a building or he's in a place. He's in the church. If you take the temple of God to be the real church where the Holy Spirit dwells, then we have to ask ourselves a question. How did he get in there where the Holy Spirit dwells? That's the logical conclusion of what that means. And I think that's creating a great deal of a problem. In fact, now, when you look at the other part of it, that even makes it more complicated is this. It says in the text that he sits as a God in the temple of God, or it could be translated, he is seated. It's an aorist verb, meaning it's a one-time event. It's not an ongoing thing. He seats himself, or he is seated in the temple of God, which would mean then inside the true church. And what does it mean by seat? Well, that, that word can be understood as a literal being seated. Like when Jesus sat on the donkey, that's the same word, a physical seat. But it also can be understood metaphorically like Jesus is at the, seated at the right hand of the Father. It doesn't mean when you get to heaven you're going to see, here's the Father. Then Jesus is seated on the right hand beside him. And then on the other side is the Holy Spirit. So when you get to heaven you see three thrones. No, there's one throne and the only one you will ever see with your eyes is Jesus Christ. The Father is the Spirit. He's invisible. The Holy Spirit is invisible. And whenever it says that the Lord is on the right hand of the Father or seated at the right hand, it means a place of authority. It means a place of superiority, supremacy. All of those words can get used in that context. He is seated at the right hand, the place of favor, the place of authority. And so whenever this says he is seated in the temple of God, And since we're taking it to be the body of Christ, that means he can't physically sit in it. So what does it mean? Well, it would have to mean he has some sense of authority. How does the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, get authority in the true church? I propose to you that that's not possible. It's not possible. And the reason why, listen to this carefully, the true church will not be deceived when it comes to Antichrist. That's not debatable. I mean, the Bible's very clear about that. That whenever Antichrist comes on the scene, the Bible is abundantly clear that the only ones who follow him are the ones who do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And then you have words like Jesus said in John ten twenty seven my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We know the shepherd, we follow the shepherd, we don't follow the false shepherds at all and then add to that the other the other verses that are plenteous that talk about that uh, true believers will not be deceived Matthew 24 24 says for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great miracles or great signs wonders to deceive but then it says this if possible even the elect and the text means that if it were possible he could deceive the elect but it's not possible that's the point of the text it's not possible even though he has signs great signs and wonders to deceive he cannot deceive the elect of god revelation 13:11 says then i saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb if you want to turn to this you can see this in revelation 13 there's a couple of verses here revelation 13:11 Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is the false prophet that comes alongside the Antichrist and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship him. It says in verse 12, And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship him, whose deadly wound was healed. Then verse 13 the false prophet performs great signs so that he makes fire come down out of heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Sounds like a pretty cut case right here. He's already deceived all those who dwell on the earth. Well, not everybody. For instance, in Revelation thirteen eight, it says all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's an exception and the exception is if you're one of the elect if you're one of those who have your name written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world then you will not be deceived. That's what it says in Revelation seventeen eight. the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into destruction and those who dwell on the earth will marvel or worship him whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And then Revelation nineteen twenty says the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image over and over again in the New Testament it talks about specifically that those who are the elect of God will not be deceived by this man and that's one of the reasons why if you look at second Thessalonians again and I'm just about to finish in second Thessalonians He says this. He he reminds them of this. It's almost identical to what we just read. 2 Thessalonians 2 9. He says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. But then, this verse 10 and with all unrighteous deception among who? Among those who are perishing. That's the lost. Those are the ones who believe the lie. That's what it says in the text. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them. Who's the them? The ones that are perishing. He will send them a strong delusion so that they should believe what? The lie, not a lie, the lie. This is the lie that has been around since the beginning of time. The lie that Satan said to Eve, you can be a God. The lie that he gives in this text in verse 4, he says, I'm God. That's the lie, that God's not the true God. The one that Darwin has attacked for so many years now in evolution. It's the lie. And the point is is that this unrighteous unrighteous deception comes on those who are the perishing ones. One last text here, maybe. Um, Back up for a moment to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, chapter 4, verse 13 and following is the time whenever you're snatched out of here. I told our church this morning, if you're uncomfortable with the word rapture, I'll use the Greek word harpazod. Okay, so you can be harpazod out of here. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, when people say rapture, they automatically think pre-tribulational rapture, Tim LaHaye and Left Behind series. Bunch of nuts. No, Okay, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about, if you want to use the word rapture. That you're caught up and taken out of here before the wrath of God begins. But Paul was talking about here, there's a day of the Lord coming, a day of his wrath. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and following, after he talks about the coming of the Lord, when he gathers together his elect from the four winds, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why does he say that? Because I've already told you these things. That's all. Verse two, for you yourselves know perfectly, talking to the Thessalonian church, for you know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. That means unexpectedly, without signs, without knowledge, with stealth. But it goes on, it says in verse three, for when they, that is the world, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, that is the world, As labor pains upon a pregnant woman. But now notice this. It says, and they, that is the world of unbelievers, shall not escape. Verse 4. But you brethren. That's us. Believers. But you brethren are not in darkness. That this day would overtake you as a thief. Why? Because you know the truth. And you know what the Bible says. It says clearly that before the day of the Lord starts, there will be a man of sin who will be revealed. And I believe, as a result of his revelation and his coming on the scene, that there will be a great falling away. Because he's going to bring all types of intense persecution on anybody who claims to be a believer, or a Jew, or a Buddhist or a Roman Catholic, any of them. He's going to go after them. If you haven't already got this book, I would encourage you to get it. It's called Hitler's Cross, written by Erwin Lutzer. Back in 1994 at Moody Church when he was pastor there, he preached six sermons on Hitler's cross. And what he was doing is showing the the amazing providence of God in the midst of one of the most horrific historical events, the rise of Hitler. In that book, he was talking about how Hitler was worshiped. And Hitler is probably, in our most current history, one of the best examples of what this man of lawlessness will be like. And in the book, it says this Hitler had a vision, or a mystical call, he called it, into politics. And he, he had a remarkable career before the World War started. He did things that were tremendous and amazing for the economy and the environment of Germany. So much so that it said, had he died before the Second World War had started, they would have named him Adolf the Great. The date of him going into politics was also important to him because he knew there was another man that entered into politics at the age of 30 like him and it was the messiah that came to save the world he said this in 1937 god has created this people and it has grown according to his will and it ha- and it is according to our will it shall remain and never pass away he fancied himself to be a leader not only of the christian world or the christian church but also the non-christian world that he would conquer he said on one occasion, and I quote, I am going to become a religious figure, so I'll be the great chief of the Tartars, and I'll also, I already have my name mingling in the prayers of the Arabs and the Moroccans. Hitler did become a god to millions. Rudolf Haas, who was the commander of Auschwitz, stated before his own execution in 1947. He said he would have gassed and burned his own wife and children, and even himself, if only the Fuhrer had commanded it. Much of the nation came under the spell of that man and hailed him the long-awaited savior that was going to bring them out of the weary poverty and humiliation of Germany. At one of the Nuremberg rallies, a giant photo of Hitler was captioned with the words, In the beginning was the word. They also took the Lord's prayer and changed it to read this way. Our father Adolf, who art in Nuremberg, hallowed be thy name, the Third Reich come. You ever wonder if we could ever see a man like that again? They could come on the scene and much of the world would follow him and submit to him and claim him to be God. You put this country or many countries in the world in a condition that Germany was in before Hitler rose on the scene, and they'll follow him right off the cliff. Right off the cliff. There's an evil man coming. That's the bad news. The good news is a holy man already came. The evil man will die. The holy man already died but he resurrected the evil man will be eternally damned into the lake of fire forever the holy man died so that you and i will escape the lake of fire forever the evil man is the antichrist the holy man is the true christ the son of the living god do you know him do you know this man christ have you trusted him as your savior and lord Trust me, even though the times of an antichrist would be horrific, it's much worse to fall into the hands of a living God without Christ. You want to make sure you know him. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you for the truth that Paul gives us in this text. Lord, I pray that you would help us just to look forward to like the Thessalonians did and wait for and anticipate the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prepare our hearts. Help us, Lord God, to be faithful witnesses of the gospel with those around us. There are so many, thousands of people that we come in contact throughout the year that are blind. They're lost. They don't know the truth. They're perishing. I pray, Father, that we would see them through that grid so we would see the urgency of sharing Christ with them. We pray all of this today in Jesus' name. Amen.